Hello and welcome to Page Parlay. This is the show where we speak to the authors or experts on the work we read on scintillating stories. Today we're speaking to Jimmy Johnson, who you might know as the Welsh Viking, about body snatching. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming back to speak to us today. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Not at all. Um, So... Today we are talking about the historical background of one of the stories we've just read uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, And he was writing from a place of having lived in and around Edinburgh during uh, a a period of time when body snatching was very much, was very popular. So I suppose um, my, my first question for you would be, what historical context do you think is important when discussing the the practice of body snatching? So I think the important things to remember about kind of the wider context around when body snatching was big is for a long time, it wasn't illegal. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a long time, it was kind of fairly essential (laughs) for the study of anatomy uh, because at the end of the night at the end of the 18th century if you wanted to study anatomy in the UK you basically were in London or Edinburgh Mm -hmm. and obviously a lot of people wanted to study anatomy because a lot of people wanted to become doctors because it was the enlightenment and Mm. science and reasoning were becoming much more popular subjects so there were hundreds and hundreds of people wanting to study as doctors in the UK every year. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, at that point, the the legal system in Britain was so utterly mental that they were executing hundreds and hundreds of people every year by hanging Uh for for ridiculously small crimes. It's like that scene in Sweeney Todd where the kid is is condemned to death for stealing a piece of bread. Like it's Mm -hmm. almost that silly. Mm -hmm. And it was actually uh, the, the Murder Act in the 1750s made it illegal to bury the bodies of murderers. So they would either be hung up and displayed to the public as a deterrent, or they'd be donated to science. It was surprising how many corpses there were available. If you needed to make more money and there weren't enough murderers around, there was nothing illegal about taking a dead body because right. nobody owned it. Mm-hmm. Nobody owned the dead body. It was just a dead body, and it was under the ground. So as long as you didn't take any of the things that somebody had been buried with, mm-hmm. you weren't stealing. And if somebody hasn't given permission for you to have, like, dead Mr. McLeod's watch, mm-hmm. you've stolen it. But mm-hmm. you can steal dead Mr. McLeod. Like, <laughs> it doesn't count. But if you steal his watch, you're going down. And then, ironically, you might be hanged for theft, and then your body <laughs> used for medical research. <laughs> Well, I mean, you've still performed your job, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> you, you have supplied the demand. So body snatching was predominantly taking place for medical purposes then? Somewhere around 500 bodies a year were needed for anatomy dissection mm-hmm. in Britain. And uh-huh. by the time Burke and Hare were around, they were only executing about 50 people a year. So where do you get the other 450 bodies from? Your choices are either go to a police station or or constabulary where there are dead bodies that nobody's claimed, mm-hmm. which you can then just take after, you know, if nobody claims it, like we just said, nobody mm-hmm. owns it. 
it's just a thing. You take it, you flog it to the local anatomy school. If it's fresh enough, they'll pay you decent money for it. Mm-hmm. They might you... even still pay you money if it was decayed, because they might want to understand why it was yeah. and how it was decaying. Exactly, yeah. I mean, they, they would pay you less, but it would still be just as useful to them, probably. So, mm-hmm. you know, there was, a bit of a, there was a bit of a sneaky, sneaky kind of, mm-hmm. well, we'll pay you more if it's fresh, but we don't really <laughs> care if it's fresh, but it'll save us some money. Um, but yeah, those are your options. You either dig it up or you find an unclaimed corpse. That is fascinating. And it actually calls into question of corpse disposal in the modern day, because it's at, nowadays it's incredibly popular. Well, I, it's popular to send, as in people will give you kudos if you donate your body to science. Uh, so you get a lot yeah. of social cachet. But back back in the day, that was something that only happened to criminals. Or uh, lost and found, I guess. The lost, yeah, the the lost and the found. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was, um, I mean, um, William Burke of Burke and Hare, he was hanged and then he was dissected in the medical school in Edinburgh. (laughs) Because he was a murderer and that's what, that's what happened. It was the the Murder Act of 1751. You cannot be buried, you either be displayed in public or donated to medical science. Like, now was I, am I right in thinking that the doctor he had been uh, giving these bodies to was the one that dissected him, or is that a myth? As far as I know, mm. that is um, potentially a myth. Mm-hmm. But Robert Knox, like Robert Knox, was there working at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't actually know if he did the cutting, mm-hmm. um, but he definitely was doing a lot of them. He did them twice a day. Um, he did dissections twice a day, and so it's potentially possible. But I'm not sure that he was the one who actually did the dissection of of, of William Burke. I think that might have been yes, that that that's might have fair. been apocryphal. That might be apocryphal. Robert Knox is featured very um, prevalently in the story we just read. Um, mm. So he is he's never on page, so to speak. He's not on screen, but he is. Uh, the two main characters work for him. Stevenson knows exactly that you know who this is. He, he says, I, I must not refer to him by name. It would be rude. So I'm going to call him Dr. K. <laughs> Which is, when you're reading that aloud, it sounds ridiculous like you're in a superhero movie. It's like the most the most coy little Victorian, like, ooh, his secret identity. It's Dr. K, (laughs) short for Knox. (laughs) So you met so was it that the the lack of murderous bodies, was that what made body snatching so much more prevalent and in the social conscious around um, the Enlightenment and the Victorian period? Yeah, definitely. It's yeah, this this lack of bodies and also the fact that you could just do it. Like those there was nothing really to stop you if you only took the corpse. Mm-hmm. And an awful lot of body snatchers didn't end up being arrested or incarcerated mm-hmm. or executed. So it was, you know, it was kind of frowned upon because you're digging up somebody's corpse, but legally up until Birkenhead, there wasn't much you could do. So yeah, the, the lack of bodies and just the popularity of anatomy mm-hmm. probably caused is are probably the two main causes of this like this epidemic of, of people nicking corpses because hundreds and hundreds of people like science medical science was advancing so quickly people like you know, like robert knox were doing all of this amazing work they were lecturing to hundreds of people robert knox was lecturing to four or five hundred people wow. at, at a time when he was dissecting like people would just walk in off the street wow. and, and watch these dissections like it was it was 
popular entertainment at the time. <laughs> uh, it really was an operating theatre. Like they were, mm. they would clap at the end, they would applaud. Like he would, he'd go out for drinks with the people who were watching him. Like it was really, really popular. Mm. And in the context of sort of 15 years beforehand, there were things like the Napoleonic Wars were happening, the French Revolution had just happened. There were, like there was lots of medicine going on there was lots of surgery going on mm -hmm. people had to know how to do surgery a lot more because there were more people dying mm -hmm. it was like it was all happening so it was a really kind of a boom time for looking inside people's bodies to mm -hmm. figure out what's going on so you need lots mm -hmm. of corpses to do that people weren't really on on board with the because uh, one of the ways i suppose we know that is because horror stories were written about um, people stealing bodies, whereas if people didn't really care, they wouldn't write it as a horror um, trope. So, what were what were some of the ways that people prevent tried to prevent their loved ones being nicked? Oh, there's there's loads and loads of great fun and less fun <laughs> um, methods. Like the you see lots of walls in graveyards with broken bits of broken glass all over the top. Wow, and that is an anti-body snatching measure. If it's on a graveyard, you know, why would you need broken glass on a, on a graveyard? It's not for zombies. It's <laughs> great robbers. Um, in Scotland, you tend to see lots of towers, lots of watchtowers in graveyards. There are mm. some in Edinburgh that are really famous, like uh, Greyfriars has got a little lodge. Um, St. Cuthbert's has got like a, a proper little castle tower. And they had people either living in them full time or taking turns as volunteers to watch the graveyard at night to make sure that nobody was being stolen. Mm -hmm. um, you get mort safes. Mort safes are probably the most famous one where it's either a metal cage or a slab of of, of iron that you just put over the grave, mm -hmm. and that prevents anyone from digging down into your grave and stealing the coffin. Mm -hmm. um, so mort safes are probably the most famous one, and they are, they are a real thing. Like Lots of people see them and go, oh, that's not for body snatching, that's just a myth, but no, genuinely... They're there to stop you being stolen after your death. So that's a thing. Um, uh -huh. And that there were there were, there were other things that people did. Like people would put the coffin inside a temporary metal coffin, mm. and then after a few months, they would dig down, take the coffin out of the metal sarcophagus, and rebury it. Mm. By which time, your body is so rotten that nobody would bother to steal it, and that mm. kind of thing. Um, so there were loads of methods. Mm. Um, all designed to either put off the thieves or stop them from getting to your body in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, one of the one of the biggest ones was probably just having somebody in the graveyard, just having someone patrol the graveyard at night—a policeman or a local volunteer or a, a local sort of militia volunteer—would just wander around the graveyard at night with a lamp well, and just make sure no one was stealing anything. That imagine pulling the literal graveyard shift that. Would have been oh, yeah. yeah, there's a theory that that's where it comes from, that the term comes from the people in the graveyard watching for body snatches. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not commenting, but <laughs> I love the idea that it is. So I'm going to believe it for now. It's such an interesting concept around the commodification of dead bodies and how to hang, coupled with this social taboo against allowing your corpse to be used for science that and it led to a lot of it led to these practices where which i suppose must have really shaken up the death rituals of the time because now not only were you coping with 
um, uh, the death of your loved one and you were going through the mourning rituals, you were also now going through security rituals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it adds a whole other level of, uh, well, complication, but also like sadness and stress because it's stressful having to imagine going to a funeral and then they bring out the safe <laughs> you, put, you put your nan in the safe to make sure nobody steals her body like that's just horrible um so that yeah it was definitely it was definitely a problem like people were writing into newspapers and writing to their mp saying this is this has got to stop we've got to do something about this mm-hmm. and of course that's why they partly why they brought in the anatomy act 1832 to you know make it illegal to steal corpses <laughs> That yeah, it was definitely being used as kind of political leverage by mm. politicians at the time. You know, saying, "Well, if if this is upsetting you, then of course I shall raise it in Parliament." And mm. and if if this horrible epidemic continues, then it is the fault of this of the government. So like you know, it was definitely ah. being used as a as a little political football. Um, mm-hmm. Not in quite the way that stuff like Brexit's used nowadays, mm. but it was definitely being used in a similar way. Uh-huh. To try and you know to try and to try and promote politicians as as mm. as men of the people, men yeah. of the people back then, of course. For the story, they yeah. uh, one of the um one of the attendings is much more gung ho about this whole thing, and uh, <laughs> is very enthusiastic about the dead bodies potentially not having come to a natural end. And one, the other one is a bit more shocked by the whole thing. And the plot point is that they are using the daily anatomy lessons to re- get rid of suspicious bodies. They were. <laughs> that's, that's literally what Burke and Hare were doing. <laughs> so they were they were using this system to hide their murders. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's ex- literally what Burke and Hare were doing. Was knowing they knew that they could get money for dead bodies from the anatomy school uh-huh. they murdered people they gave them to the anatomy school mm-hmm. and then they walked away knowing that the bodies would be you know dissected the flesh would be disposed of burnt the bones would be either you know flensed and displayed in an anatomy lab or just buried mm-hmm. and no one would have any evidence that there'd been any wrongdoing by them because okay. they smothered them they didn't have fingerprinting. They didn't have any knowledge of DNA. You know, what are you going to do? So, mm. yeah, that's literally exactly what they were doing, using using this loophole in the law to, to dispose of the bodies. Now, I know that uh, for a certain period of time in, in history, um, dissecting humans w- was considered illegal, at least by the Catholic Church, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, so before the... Um, I'm not entirely sure when it was legalized, but certainly when, when you know, Europe was a, a Catholic continent, mm-hmm. um, dissecting was forbidden okay. by the church. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was proscribed by the Pope, and um, people like Leonardo da Vinci mm. um, got into some trouble with the Pope for <laughs> clearly drawing dead bodies. And, you know, the ways that you get around that, if, if you find somebody who's been murdered or has a horrible cut or something like that that reveals the insides of their body, that's basically how you can get around it. But, oh. you know, there were ways and means. Um, but it was the same in Islamic countries as well. In the Islamic caliphates, it was it was mm. completely illegal to cut open a dead body because you're um, you're defiling the body. You know, there are still people today who have huge problems with things like dissection and... Um, 
what you call it, autopsy and post-mortem exams and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so it's still a really difficult, it's still a difficult one. It's still a touchy subject, but mm-hmm. kind of by the 18th century in Britain, you know, we're past, we're past the Reformation. We're into the, very much into the Enlightenment period. So mm. a lot of people are now volunteering to give their body to science. Ah, so people were volunteer, starting to volunteer. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, there are, there are people, um, there are people giving their bodies to science. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people, a lot of doctors um, and anatomists, mm-hmm. kind of saying, you know, I I don't really see, I don't really see the point. Why bother? Mm-hmm. You know, I I'm I'm openly atheist now and can be openly atheist without being mm-hmm. burned at the stake. So <laughs> you can have my body after I die. Yeah. You know, whatever. Who not cares? not too concerned um, about it. <laughs> exactly. There's also, but there is also like there's the darker side of this where in um, kind of notably in America, mm. um, the bodies of enslaved people are being dissected, oh. and then that gets into the really dark stuff of kind of well, when we dissected these black people, we found this, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how white people work. Oh. Is literally how some people were at the time sort of theorizing. There was still this dominant theory that white people and black people were somehow physiologically different in ways that they're obviously not sexual misconduct with a corpse was illegal at that point like that was already illegal okay well Um, good (laughs) but that's literally this is the level we're talking about 200 300 years ago is okay don't have sex with a corpse um you're good to go (laughs) don't 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 touch it inappropriately that's not okay Um, but you can do whatever else you want Oh yeah, ge- genuinely, like, don't have sex with it. Um, technically, you can dig it back up and sell it. That's fine, but um... <laughs> yeah. R- rather you didn't, from a Christian perspective. But you know, yeah. Yeah, if you must, it. if you must, were a lot of body snatchers also murderers, or were they more just people doing a job? After Burke and Hare, there's a there is a gang of murderers in London called the London Burkers. Oh God, <laughs> and. There are claims that they had been body snatching and then decided that murder would be more profitable and quicker and easier. <laughs> and that's kind of what Burke and Hare did. I mean, they didn't snatch any bodies, but there is this idea that they had claimed an, an unclaimed body, sold it, and then gone, hang on a minute, we can make our own. <laughs> uh, the, the London Burkers were a legitimate gang. They were a gang of men down in London who tricked people, um, mugged people, and just sort of snuck up on people and then smothered them to death and sold their bodies to the anatomy school down in London. Mm. So they're not typical, but they're definitely not the one and only example of it. There are people doing it over in America. Mm. There are people doing it down in London. There are people doing it um, in other parts of Europe. Mm. So they're not, they're not kind of, it's not, it's not typical. Your typical body snatcher isn't also a murderer. Mm-hmm. Your typical body snatcher, honestly, is probably somebody who is starving to death oh. and just needs the money yeah. and just has no other options. You have to, I mean, you have to be desperate to dig through six feet of clay, <laughs> rent, wrench open a coffin, and undress and steal a naked corpse uh-huh. to get money. Like that's not a nice job for anybody. No. We think of it as having died out completely, but it's it's still going on in certain areas of the world. So um, in certain parts of Asia, 
um, there is a trade in uh, what they call ghost brides. Um, and that is where uh, a if a member of your family has died young and unmarried, um, due to various cultural beliefs, that that soul will be unhappy in the afterlife. And sometimes family members will have dreams where th- that family member communicates to them and says, I'm lonely, please can I get married? And then the families will organize them to get married to a local, preferably a local corpse of a similar age. Um, and that, that has m- many cultural benefits for both parties. Um, the, 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 the female party will be remembered in, on her husband's grave. Um, but unfortunately, because of this, um, demand for young women, particularly, there are cases where women's bodies are getting stolen uh and shipped around and like they they're being the, yeah the families are being told oh yes our cousin died would you we can organize a marriage for her but very often they will sell a body bury it then dig it back up and take it to another family that needs so you get, you get bigamous corpses, which is the strangest thing in the world. And like with Birkenhair, some people have started murdering young women to sell their bodies to these families that need yeah. ghost brides. So the system is very, it's very easy for people to slide from we're just nicking bodies into we're creating these bodies. Yeah, that's, it's, I mean, it's not a long leap of logic. <laughs> You know, kind of. How do we cut out the middleman in this gig? Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got a pillow, it's a, <laughs> but it's not a nice. It's not a nice leap of logic to take. Like you have to be either desperate or. I mean, they were they were Birkenhair by today's standards. They were almost certainly, you know, psychologically damaged in some way. Right? You oh, don't yes. you don't smother sixteen people to death and sell their body for a profit. Unless you're going through something. <laughs> yes, and I, I suppose at the time, there were a considerable num- number of things that would scar someone like that. Uh, the, it, it was a difficult, it was a difficult world at the time, and still is, but particularly difficult then. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are, um, there's sort of, uh, there are kind of potentially, probably apocryphal stories of, of William Hare after, the, after he, he, you know, turns on Burke the swine and <laughs> escapes of, of people seeing him as this shattered, blind old beggar man who just can't handle what he's done anymore. Yeah. When a body, when you as a, as a physical form are worth more dead than alive, what does that say about the society that at that time, that, 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 that must be something very difficult going on. People weren't treating the corpse with reverence all the time. Mm. And they certainly weren't treating everybody's corpse with reverence. There are mass graves of homeless people all over Britain that kind of teaches that. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, we have plenty of people making gravestones and, and buying gravestones for paupers and oh. homeless people and beggars mm. um, all over the UK and abroad. You know, you can't really generalize is what I'm trying to get at here is if, mm. if somebody dies, their family will cry and mourn. And if they're up in the Highlands, their family will probably uh, weep on the way to the grave and, mm. and drink and sing songs about them. Mm. And if you are in a chapel in Wales, 
you will be laid to rest for a week and all your family and friends will come and visit you and oh. kiss you goodbye. That is interesting. I know I'm always bringing up Marx, but I'm going to bring him up again. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And it's uh, related to, we mentioned Sweeney Todd earlier, which again was a product, uh, a fictional product of people's anxieties around death and the mishandling of uh, bodies. And in the in the musical that was made by Sondheim, there is a very poignant message about capitalism, the, the rampant capitalism of the Victorian period, um, turning us all into objects of either worth or no worth, and our physical, our physical houses being, we are the meat pies. We are consumed, uh, either by our labor or which we are now completely divorced from in this period. Um, uh, if, if you are an industrial worker, you are completely dissociated from the product of your work, um, which leads to all sorts of psychological problems, um, where you stop seeing other people as human and you stop seeing yourself as human. And it, it, it's a fascinating psychological thing to look at. And, I, that's why I, even though it's a, I was so scared of that story when I was a kid, it freaked me out. But now I look at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is talking about the way that people looked and thought about themselves. They were consumed by the system. And I think that that's, that that's a very interesting point that, that, yeah, no wonder Marx was writing again, very around this, uh, very around this period of we have become consumable. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, people are constantly being found. Yeah, I mean, at the end of um, A Christmas Carol with Dickens, mm-hmm. it, it, he is, um, Scrooge is reduced to a shirt, his bedclothes, and his possessions. Yeah. Nobody, nobody cares about the man. Mm-hmm. Everybody's, everyone's interested by the end of it. That's, he is reduced to his 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 leavings what can he do to profit those he's left behind mm. his body is ir- completely irrelevant at that stage um i think it's fascinating that in all of in all of the bits of christmas carol we never see his funeral we never mm-hmm. hear an, a eulogy mm. we see a gravestone and then we see his possessions being pawned off after his death and i think that's another really interesting example of how it worked mm. in in that period there were people out there who would take the, literally the rags off your back and sell them or make them into something else or pawn them. You know, it was uh-huh. a seriously difficult time for people who weren't fabulously wealthy. Mm-hmm. And the system did chew people up and spit them out. You know, if you worked in a if you worked in a match factory, you mm-hmm. worked in the match factory, you worked with dangerous hazardous materials, you got sick, you went to the workhouse, you died. Mm-hmm. Your body was disposed of in a pauper's grave. Your clothes and meager possessions were sold off, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You're done. You you are a cog, a tiny cog in a vast imperial machine. Um, mm-hmm. That's it. That's all you are. So, if your body is in good enough condition, why 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 does that why does that stop there? Yeah. Why does it have to stop there? There's no reason for your body to go to waste. It's a perfectly good body. Mm-hmm. If you've got a perfectly good human body that's worth a guinea, I'm going to dig it up mm-hmm. after your funeral. Everybody's had a lovely funeral. Very good. All the weeping, all the crying. Right. They'll never know. And they will never know mm-hmm. most of the time. There are there are empty graves out there that we haven't found. Guaranteed. Who checks? Hundreds of them. Who checks yeah. if you're not already a grave robber? <laughs> yeah. 
And if a, if a grave is fresh that day, mm. you sneak in in the middle of the night, you dig it up, the soil hasn't settled, you fill it back up, it looks exactly the same the next day. Mm. What were the factors that caused this practice? It's not Obviously, it's not completely died out all over the world, but it's definitely a lot less prevalent. So what, what, why, how did that happen? Um, so a big part of... A big part of it dying out, obviously, we have to take this in context, a little bit in context again of in Britain, it died out because of the Anatomy Act in 1832. Ah. Um, specifically prevented this being a loophole. So at the time, it was a, lo- a legal loophole where if, you know, you acquire a body, nobody owns it, it's fine, you can sell it. Mm-hmm. In 1832, um, anatomists could only get a body if it had been donated to them, um, kind of left to them with the family's permission, or it had gone unclaimed. So they cut the middlemen out. So where you would have people like Burke and Hare before knocking on the door and saying, hello, I've got this corpse in a wheelbarrow, would you like it? <laughs> now, the anatomists would have to send you know, a medical student to the police station and say, with a with a wheelbarrow and say, have you got any corpses, please? Oh, what a job that for that poor. They must have really yeah. pissed the lecturer off that day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, using using the wrong kind of citation. A <laughs> oh, your own corpse to D. In America, it was still uh, unfortunately uh, enslaved people were still mm. fair game for another thirty years. You could just say, well, my slaves died. Uh, sell the body. Places like the uh, the Middle East and the, the Arabian Peninsula, it was still deeply, deeply um, frowned upon because it, it goes against aspects of Islamic law in a lot of countries. Um, I think in China, under the Qing dynasty, there were ways and means for anatomists to get the permission of the family to mm. dissect bodies. I think that was fairly established. Um, mm. In the US... There were similar problems with body snatching, but again, they jumped on it pretty hard. Oof, yeah. After the Anatomy Act in the UK came in, the Americans very quickly established similar things and said, right, okay, no, if you want to dissect a human body, you have to have the permission of the family, mm-hmm. or you have to have been given it by a legitimate police department or a police force. Right. Uh, and then it gets more and more complex and it gets more and more ethically based and you have to have, you know, you can only have the permission of the family or if it's in the will, you can have this person's body. And I think that's now the position we're in is if your body is donated to science, it has to have your signature on it. It has to be witnessed. It has to be, you know, go through the proper legal channels. You have to have that little stamp on your driver's license. You have to have the little stamp on your driver's license, the tattoo on your inner thigh. Mm-hmm. Did it become more accepted to donate your body to science over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, throughout the Victorian, you know, it's Birkin Harris pre-Victorian, but throughout the Victorian period, um, it becomes more and more just a, a thing that you could do, mm. uh, partly because this act came in as a result of these really famous murders where, you know, this this huge murder case, of this huge serial murder case happens. Mm. The government immediately brings in a law that prevents that from happening again. That's um, that's headline news. Mm. And that doesn't go away very quickly. So it, it definitely becomes more 
part of the, the general public's consciousness. And you start seeing things like graveyards being reformed and planned in different ways. Mm. Um, you start seeing things like garden graveyards and cemeteries appearing and the way that we look at body disposal and graveyards changes. And as that happens, it becomes a lot more scientific. So people are more interested in kind of science than they are in theology in the way that they live their lives medical science advances usually and people kind of go well if medical science is to continue advancing then of course we must do the right thing and and allow our bodies to be used after death after all we have no need for them it's amazing that this great tragedy which it was like the people that so many people died wrongly spurred maybe the the solution where people went well that it is like you say a duty to further knowledge. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, oh, it is a huge tragedy. I mean, 16 people are dead in horrible circumstances. Mm. And, um, but then every solution comes from a problem, right? One of the great examples I can think of is, of course, Jeremy Bentham. Yes. <laughs> old, old, shriveled raisin head. Have you seen him? I've seen him. You've seen him in person. Have you, yeah, have you, have you met him? I have not met him, but my cousin ah. actually was the curator of uh, his exhibit for a little bit. Oh wow, that's really cool! Yeah, I went down and uh, and said hello a couple of years ago. He's looking oh, well. How lovely! I'm so glad to hear it. He was a very big public profile figure who advocated for donating your body, even though he was making a big statement by doing it and having a man of great station and wealth going. Well, nope, you can dissect me. I suppose it was was is that roughly around the time period when that social taboo really started to shift? Well, yeah, I mean. Um, Jeremy Bentham actually died uh, a couple of years after the Burke and Hare murders. Right. He only died, I think, three or four years afterwards. He died in 1830-something. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it, it really is. It's this whole shift to science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of it is what we would now consider pseudoscience. <laughs> but this shift to trying to develop the scientific method... Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people like Jeremy Bentham genuinely have just kind of gone, do you know what? If I'm a spirit after I die, what do I need a body for? Mm-hmm. And if I'm not a spirit after I die, what do I need a body for? <laughs> You're, that is a, a very practical way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, he was a, he was a utilitarian. He was, <laughs> he kind of started the utilitarian movement, Jeremy Bentham, mm-hmm. where, you know, you don't need anything other than what, it's just what you need. And after you're dead, you don't need anything. Mm-hmm. But anatomists will require corpses. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the logical conclusion is I have to give my body to science after I'm dead so that anatomists can continue to use it. That's the only logical thing to do with my body. Why put it in the ground, take up space, mm-hmm. when you can use it before that? Mm. What like, a wonderful way of thinking. And I suppose, I suppose we owe... Everyone up to the modern day, everyone who donates their body, that's one more, that's one more body that won't have to be stolen. If people start donating their bodies to museums, we might, we might get to a point where people are giving back the bodies that they have nicked under wrongful, wrongful state situations. So I'm thinking particularly people like Charles Byrne and Julia Pastrana, who were considered freaks and exhibits yes. in their, in their lifetime and then against their will, their bodies, were kept in museums and if the modern that that is becoming much more of a a social issue nowadays we are now looking at museums and going wait 
should these dead bodies be here and should these artifacts be here and actually so it, it, asking a lot so maybe like with after the the body snatching became such an epidemic and people started taking the social responsibility of donating their bodies maybe modern day people will start thinking well i will donate my body to this museum if it means that somebody who didn't want to be there is released it could well yeah it might well i think it yeah it depends on there's, I mean, there are so many variables, right, in people's personal philosophies that you have to take into account. But I like to think, I like to think maybe, yeah, that if that's some good that can come out of it, then absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us today about such a very, a, a very interesting and complex subject. Oh, always happy to talk about death and graves. <laughs> you, because uh, that's currently what you're working on right now for your PhD, isn't it? It is, yeah. That's my, my PhD thesis is looking at gravestones. Not from a body-snatching perspective, I hasten to add. <laughs> Just from an epigraphical perspective. I, I, I fully believe you. <laughs> you share your knowledge uh, online. So where where can people go if they want to hear more from you? Sure, yeah. I have a, a little YouTube channel where I am called The Welsh Viking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do I do little historical videos. They're all quite light-hearted. They're, they're all sort of semi-academic. Mm-hmm. Um quite quite fun little videos that's that's where i am at the moment mm-hmm. and uh, at some point there'll be there'll be a phd thesis that people will be able to read Hooray! on average four people read your phd thesis so if more than that read mine i'll be very pleased oh fantastic well i will de- i will certainly check it out um Hooray, that's one. <laughs> <laughs> one more um go to jimmy's channel it is every episode is a delight thank you so much for listening you can see more of jimmy's work at the welsh viking on youtube I'll provide a link in the show notes. If you have a story you'd like us to read or a topic you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page or on Twitter and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.